Hey there, and welcome right in. Thank you for tuning in. It's the Justly Impact Show. I am your host, Josh Carey, and this show is brought to you by investjustly.com, encouraging you to invest your principle with principle. Today's show is a good one. It could be argued that we as humans, we waste a lot of things. Would you agree? And today's episode is going to be all about using waste for good. Imagine that. And to help us connect all these dots, our two guests are here doing incredibly impactful show with waste. We have Adeen Alai, who is the CEO of NineFiber.com, and what they're doing are using various forms of waste to produce usable fiber. And then we have Carl Farrow joining us, the CEO of Serafi. They're using technology to use abandoned wells to produce geothermal clean energy. Amazing stuff. Thank you both for joining today. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. Let's start with you, Adeen. I want to hear about Nine Fiber. At its core, lay the groundwork. What is it? What impact are you really making here? You know, that's Josh. Thanks so much. It's um, first of all, thanks for having us on the show. I, I think this is a really great topic, and 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 hopefully we'll be able to explain a little bit more about what we do and why we do it uh, during the course of the show. But Nine Fiber, at its core, is an agritech company. Uh, we have a, a patented solution that transforms the waste streams from the cannabis and industrial hemp industries into usable fiber and cellulose for a variety of products across nine major markets. So our goal is to reduce the amount of petroleum and timber-based products that are ingredients in, in all these end products across these markets. And it turns out that there's quite a bit of timber, and obviously there's quite a bit of petroleum. So using this renewable material uh, you know, solves what we want to do as far as an impact um, on the planet is concerned. Which is what? Why is this so important? What if this wasn't, in essence, being done? Well, the reason why it's important is because hemp is a, is a renewable crop. It has a tremendous carbon sequestration component. Uh, in one acre of an industrial hemp, it'll sequester more carbon than in an acre of trees. That's super important. It grows every 90 to 110 days as a growth cycle versus using virgin timber forest or timber in general, which grows in two years or more and then is harvested. You can leave the trees alone and use this renewable material in, in its place. Um, and on the in its versatility, it's just incredibly versatile. Everything from the the outside, the bass fiber for textiles and non-wovens, to the interior material, the cellulosic material for a wide variety of applications, from composites to packaging to bioplastics to industrial applications to food. So there are there's just a tremendous amount of applications to this material, and we're fortunate to be able to utilize our technology to create a super hyper-clean um, engineered material out of this waste stream. Absolutely fascinating. Carl, over to you now. The, the technology to use abandoned wells to produce geothermal clean energy. What? What, what is all this? What's happening here with Serafi? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we've, um, we're a, a predominantly a group of uh, oil and gas um, guys who have sort of gone, now moved from the dark side to the rebel sort of cause and try to trying to do something good with a load of uh, knowledge and expertise from the oil and gas industry 
and obviously, you know, we we live in a fossil fuel driven world, and that's just what's driving all this um, climate um, sort of push towards uh, decarbonisation, etc. And uh, one of the key things we looked at is, well, you know, we can take heat from the ground, which we pre- predominantly do in thermal energy for geothermal, and every single well out there that's end of life and non-producing still has that heat in the ground, even though the hydrocarbons or gas is, is uh, not being produced anymore. And rather than just uh, pouring concrete down these wells, which generally oil and gas companies have to do at the end of their life, they have to decommission the well, abandon it, pour concrete down it, turn the green field, you know, the well area back to a sort of green field. Well, in most you know, ethical countries, they do. There's a lot of countries that don't. Um, but, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is is that's a cost to the end user. It's uh, There's no revenue stream generated about from the oil and gas companies. And invariably, you know, uh, a lot of companies are kicking the can down the road of doing that and yeah. stopping, you know, a- avoiding that process um, because they don't want to spend the money because there's no you know, benefit of spending the money at that point. And that's when you start getting orphaned wells or wells that are abandoned, wells that are leaking, you know, methane and all these types of things in, and uh, 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 tipping all this stuff in the atmosphere. So we came along as Serafi and said, well, you know, we can do something with the heat in the wells. We can take these liabilities and spin them to become profitable assets by designing a piece of kit that goes in the well that actually allows us to circulate fluids down a well, which is several kilometers deep normally. And uh, with a working fluid, we take the heat that's in the bottom of the well, transport that back to the surface, and then through heat exchanges and various off-the-shelf equipment that's out there, like organic Rankine cycle uh, systems and things which turn heat into power or heat into higher volume energy, we can then use that energy from a green environment for a green use, um, whether it be directly for power or directly for heat or even heat cooling, things like desalination, water treatment, all of these things can be used as a, as a process from using that heat. If I was coming up on an abandoned well, that wouldn't cross my mind that this is even a possibility. What, who, where did you come from in your life path that allowed you to connect those dots? What was happening there? Well, I, I had a bit of a sort of what they call a Yoda moment in Mexico. I was doing some due diligence for a large investment company on some assets in Mexico for restate, re refinance and sort of state infrastructure. And one of the projects I looked at was a large geothermal project. And uh, it was the first time in my sort of oil and gas career I'd really looked at um, geothermal. Uh, the first thing that struck me is, well, these are all about wells and drilling holes in the ground and uh, processing fluids and all the things we do in oil and gas. And hey, this is clean, this is baseload, 24-7 energy. And every well that I've ever been involved with around the world had heat in it, has has heat involved in it somewhere down the line. And generally in the oil and gas sector, heat is a barrier to development, not a positive thing. So the deeper you drill, the hotter it gets. Drilling drilling tools actually get fried and get burnt and get uh, damaged in hot temperature. So the hotter you go, uh, actually it's a challenge in the drilling industry. So... I just sort of say, well, you know, there must be a way of using this. Why isn't this being done globally? And it really just attracted me, the whole concept. And I just thought, we have to do something about this. And I just, uh, from there, it became like a mission from 2016 till now uh, to really try and do something which is a step change. And the simple way to connect the dots between oil and gas and where we are today is, is I said, well, what what already does this? Um, well, ground source heat pumps, they've been around for years and they do this at, uh, you know, three or four metres under the ground. So why don't we just do that at, at kilometres rather than metres? 
and that's where we connected the dots between the two so really just looking at you know really what works what's being out there what's being done and then connecting the dots between how do you make that apply in a oil and gas magnitude world at, at kilometers with higher pressures higher temperature Adine, your company you have multiple patents you've raised seven figures uh in funding you've won awards bring us back to 2016 2017 when your brother had the concept for this what was the connection there oh wow okay so the connection was the first connection was how do i solve a waste problem that was the connection so my brother was an independent uh, cannabis grower in those kind of early days the gray market days in colorado and in california right when legalization had happened and, and cannabis um, at any type of scale uh, is different than, than hemp. Cannabis has a weekly waste yield. You, you harvest on a weekly basis uh, versus uh, hemp, which is on an annual basis. So every week he's got these massive stalks, you know, that are silver dollar or larger size and diameter, four foot to six foot in length. Um, they look like little trees just piling up all over the place. Because in the cannabis industry, all you, all you really care about is the flower. You don't care about the rest of it. And, um, you know, this starts to become a nuisance after a while. They're incredibly strong. They chew up wood chippers. Um, they damage the blades. They're just incredibly strong plants. And so in those days, what you did was <laughs> you got a U-Haul and you uh, piled a bunch of them in the back of a U-Haul in the middle of the night and tried to dump them out in the middle of the forest someplace, or you burned them discreetly if you could. And after some time of doing this, it's just not scalable when you're trying to run an operation. It's just absolutely not. So at that time, he... He thought, well, he'd fall in love with hemp, the story of hemp, right? The, uh, the problems with hemp, the, the conspiracy theories around hemp, the politics around hemp, the fact that hemp is a thriving material elsewhere in the world versus here in the West and thought, well, hemp's been around for several thousand years. Nobody's ever tried to make fiber out of a marijuana plant before. And uh, he locked himself in a garage and is a bit of a kind of a basic chemist and came up with the, found, uh, with the fundamentals of what ended up becoming our patented chemistry and created fiber out of a marijuana stalk. And that was something that nobody had ever seen before. And uh, he, brought upon, he brought on a chemical engineer and a few other people to really help him standardize and stabilize what he was doing. And uh, CBD hemp, turns out it worked even better. The chemistry worked even better on CBD hemp. And uh, he tried, a, there was very, very, very little bit of industrial hemp being grown in that time, almost just in, you know, almost just sample acreages, not even an acre, quarter acre, eighth of an acre, that kind of thing, just little tiny bits. Worked even better with that. And so within no time, we realized, oh my God, there's all of this waste being generated by the booming cannabis and, and CBD hemp industries. All this material is either being burned or thrown into a landfill. There's got to be a better use for it. And that's really what started the whole thing. That's really what started it. It's just trying to solve a waste problem and then realizing that the material is just as an important input as the existing industrial hemp um, industry, you know, that exists elsewhere around the world. That's where it started. How is the... How do you feel the the reputation of the word hemp and the industry and public perception of it all today? Uh, it's really grown a lot. Uh, I think early in those days in, in 2016, 2017, 2018, you know, you couldn't you really couldn't 
keep somebody from laughing, smiling, patting you on the head and going, okay, yeah, right, I'm sure, you know, just, just smoke it. That's what all everybody does. Or, or asking you silly questions like, can I smoke my shirt? Or something along those lines, right? Um, it, it's, it's changed quite a bit. Uh, and, I, and oddly enough, I've got to thank COVID for that. Um, if it wasn't for COVID, and I know COVID's been devastating to you know millions of people. Certainly devastating uh, to people, to my family and and friends and family that I know. But if it wasn't for COVID, the world would not have refocused. At least the U.S. would not have refocused on sustainability, on on climate, on our climate crisis. Would not have even considered um, regional supply chains and reshoring manufacturing and looking at alternatives in a very serious, uh, very serious way with teeth. Versus how it used to be, which was, you know, a, a nice to have, maybe a box to check, but nothing was taken, taken very seriously. Um, so I think today's version of hemp is still is much different than it was just five, six years ago as far as what it could do. But we still have a long way to go for people to understand how what a technical material this can be when it's prepared the right way. Carl, spell out, since it's about impact, spell out, if you could, one of your proudest moments to date that you can connect to being impactful through Seraphy. Um, yeah, there's, there's quite a few, actually. Um, I, think, I think really just the, 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 the whole process of, of being at the start of a movement, um, which really is a movement now. I mean, we've seen geothermal really you know, be, be a, become a global subject in the last couple of years, whereas before people really didn't even talk about it. And uh, and I think a lot of that has come again from uh, even before we set Seraphy up and officially launched the company, you know, we were talking to various stakeholders through the US and partners and we'd done the first pivot um, show back in 2020, early 2020, which was involving a global audience uh, hosted through the, the Austin... Um, uh, university uh, and uh, you know it, it reached a global audience and every show since then or every year it's got bigger and bigger and this year I think you know the you know the, the actual audience globally now around the geothermal energy space in general talking about the use of heat is a subject matter that is you know in everyone's agenda even in the US I mean you, you could walk in a lift in the US you know two years ago and say you're in energy and somebody you know, even a five-year-old kid would say, what's the LCOE? You know, what's the levelized cost of electricity? You know, and like nobody talks about heat, but everyone talks about power. But now everyone's in the EV, even in the US, is starting to get an understanding that actually heat is playing a major issue in the energy mix. And, you know, going back to the, the cold snaps in, in Texas last, um, you know, February 2021, when, you know, ERCOT shut down and people were lost their lives through, uh, through that period, they didn't die because they didn't have electricity. They died because they didn't have heat, and you know, and they suddenly got a region that was without heat in a cold snap, and people were were losing their lives. And I think being at that sort of mission-driven front end of of this, and being able to to see this evolve, has been, yeah, it's been just a really a proud moment, not just for me, but for the company. And I think the whole company along the journey has really felt that. We, you know, we are a people's-driven business. We have most of our, nearly all our employees are shareholders. They've, you know, they are involved in the business, not just as a employees, but stakeholders. And we've, that's another, you know, part of the business again that we set up from the beginning is to, to make this a mission, make this a people's business, and make this something that actually can be driven along long way down the line even when the founders and the, you know the people who were there the builder have moved on you know it becomes a people-owned operation and a mission to deliver 
uh, for a long period of time. And that was really important to us when we started. And we've managed to pull it off, you know. When we were talking off air, you mentioned you were dyslexic. Is there anything about the journey that's been very challenging so far? Well, I think, you know, it's like, I mean, I didn't realize I was dyslexic until I was sort of later on, later in life. And I think when you go to school, um, certainly when I went to school, you know, people, you were in a category, whether you were, you were an academic or you were just dumb, you know. Uh, and I think nowadays that whole concept moved on. And I was very practical at school, wasn't really connecting with the, the areas of uh, sort of English and the areas that, you know, you normally get. But what I did find is my voice and I found a, an ability to be able to speak. So what I learned fairly early on in life is actually whilst reading and writing and mathematics is really good, actually talking is even better because you can actually get heard and people can do stuff, you know. So I just pushed myself forward on that basis. And that's been a really sort of message I've been trying to push through life with people who are less vulnerable or, you know, less academic and uh, find themselves in a hard situation um, to actually drive them forward is look at the, the other positive areas to pull on. And uh, um, yeah, and I, I do advocate for, for that sort of area. I, I've, I've volunteered in, in, you know, in prisons in all sorts of areas working with dyslexic people and dyslexic, um, you know, uh, communities and, uh, yeah, it's amazing, actually, that, you know, the amount of uh, people out there who do suffer from uh, various forms of dyslexia. It's not just one. It covers all sorts of different areas. And I don't even think today that people fully understand the whole remit of it. But, you know, the amount of people that do suffer from learning disabilities around the dyslexia area, whether it's with numbers or words or reading or, or even communication, is, is pretty huge. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's something I've just used to my advantage by being able to talk. <laughs> It's amazing. I love that uh, quote about reading and writing and, and math, but but you love to talk. I know so many of us can relate to that. Adine, you had mentioned that you um, there were a lot of dark days in the early days and you were questioning, should you even keep going? But you apparently received some sort of message every time you were wondering if you should forge ahead. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think every entrepreneur goes through goes through a wave or a spell of that, or even continuously. Um, so I, I found that I found that what I was feeling to be somewhat common, uh, which made me feel better. But at the time, I mean, you have to have to imagine the entire U.S. is ablaze, and no pun intended, with cannabis sales and CBD sales, and and people are making money hand over fist. I mean. Many multimillionaires were made in those days. And I'm sitting on an island with maybe, maybe there was one or two other people in those days really looking at this seriously going, this is not the future. This is just the first wave. The future is in the industrial application. The future is in the fiber for all these other things. It's not just smoking and extracting the plant or the flower. It's all this other stuff that's really going to make this industry a mature industry. And when is anybody going to start looking at that? And uh, there were many days when I felt I was the only one preaching that message. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, we're just going to go make a couple hundred million over here. We're going to go make a couple hundred million over there. And I'm like, but wait, <laughs> wait, what about this part? And so um, those were very dark moments. Um, and they were, they were consistent. I mean, there was, you know, sometimes weeks where it was like nobody would pay attention, but then on a fairly regular basis, I would get 
an inquiry out of nowhere from a textile brand or an inquiry out of nowhere from um, some organization that discovered us and was uh, really impressed by our journey and our passion in this space um, and wanted to either interview us or um, invite us to, to uh, apply for a grant or something along those lines. So on a, on a fairly regular basis, as I was having the low moments, right, this is the entrepreneurial curve, it kind of goes up and down, there was always something that was bringing me back up to just kind of send me that message to keep going, that we're in the early days, that this, this material will be recognized, and all I needed to keep doing is per persevere and find the applications, find the uses, create the use case so that when people are ready, we're already ready for them. Take us home with this. If you, in essence, stopped doing this, what would happen? And I would love for you to connect it to your brake pad visual, please. <laughs> if I stopped doing this, well, I mean, today there are, there are several other companies that are kind of like-minded or like-missioned. Um, if I stopped doing this a long time ago when I first started, uh, I don't know where the industry would be today, to be honest. People would be probably just focused on the textile piece of it and not looking at this the entire plant and its applications. Textiles is a wonderful industry, totally not going to dismiss it. It's an industry we, we hope to get into um, and have promised to get into. However, the applicable fiber for the textile portion is 5% of the mass of the stock. 5 to 10, maybe 15%. The other remaining portion of the stock is all the interior cellulosics. And um, to give you an example of you know, the nine industries that we play in, the majority of them are in the cellulosic space. So when I brought on, to, to kind of answer your question, when I brought on my COO, uh, who's my partner in crime and all this, and his background is in mineral wool and was the former president of Lapinus Fibers, which was the U.S. division of rock wool, and his entire life had been in, in fiber and industrial applications of fiber in a variety of different forms. And he's the one that introduced me to the concept of this material is an engineered filler. It's an engineered product. And by the way, did you know that brake pads use timber as a binder, as an engineered binder in their formulations? I said, no, I had no idea. He goes, every brake pad has 6% up to 10 or so percent in it. And I said, really? So he, part he introduced me to one of um, his good friends, which was a head scientist in one of the largest brake pad organizations in the world. And we did a little Skunks Works project and reformulated the Ford Mustang GT brake pad, which is right here, and replaced the timber cellulose that was in it at 6% with ours. Performed better, dosed better, has a great sustainability story. Turns out it has a melt point very similar to glass. So it's a great data point for a ceramic brake as an engineered filler. And that began to open my eyes as to, oh my God, the amount of applications this can go into. Then I started learning that there's timber in paint, there's timber in caulk, there's timber in adhesives, there's timber in architectural coatings on your roof, there's timber in our food, there's timber in just about everything. And hmm. when you start to look at, when, when you... Um, when you take the red pill to use a matrix reference and you start to see how things are made and you understand that a thing that you see in front of you is actually the summation of a bunch of different ingredients, then that completely turned how our team and specifically me, how I started to look at this material. I started to look at this material as an incredible ingredient that goes into other things. And that's, that 
with that uh, mindset, that's what made us kind of really clarify where we were in this space and how to present ourselves. Carl, thank you for that. Carl, take us home with this. You've uh, already are on the path to impact globally. How do you take that to the next level? What's on the horizon going forward for you and Serafi? Yeah, I mean, collaboration is, is key and working with multiple partners. You know, we can't, you know, this, this climate um, issue is a, a global issue. As I didn't say, it's massive. And it's, uh, you know, we just sit in our little space of, uh, of energy trying to fight the energy challenge in this uh, climate um, uh, space. And uh, I was in New York last week at Climate Week and, uh, you know, I was quite blown away with, you know, sectors like the textile market and these of, you know, some of the challenges they have. And when you add all this together, it's just absolutely just mind blowing what we've got to do in front of us. So, I mean, yeah, the, the challenge for us is really to, you know, scale this. Um, scaling means not just obviously access to resource and funding and things like that, but it also means access to multiple partners who are prepared to collaborate and work together to to do this at scale. And, you know, you know, people as a startup, people always say, well, who's the competition? Why haven't people done this before? Why, you know, there's all these crazy uh, sort of alluded areas that people are focused on. Nobody focuses on, well, what do you need? How can we help you? And how do you move forward? You know, and I think as an entrepreneur, you have to create the path. You have to be out there leading the, the field. And I do come up with crazy ideas and people that, you know, there's, I, I work with the team around me who deliver the solutions, but you know, I'm the sort of leader there, you know, look, not looking to win the war with one project or one thing. You know, this is, a, you know, winning a war is about multiple battles and you have to be on all fronts and you have to be out there doing multiple things because you are going to lose the odd battle here and there. But if you give up, then, you know, you're never going to win the war. So I look at this as a mission. The mission is uh, climate change. It's not about anything else behind us. It's about climate change. And it's actually, it is a you know, a battle to actually challenge and attack climate change to actually make sure we do make an impact. And I think that's really where we are. And I think we, we've still got a huge amount to go. We're only just literally, you know, literally coming out of the dark ages in the geothermal space into a new era. And I think, you know, geothermal can really be um, not just in the form we're doing it, but in general, I think geothermal can be a, a game changer for the energy mix, um, providing baseload energy along with solar, wind and everything else that's out there, hydrogen and, and everything. And uh, it's something that's going to be, you know, it's literally everywhere around us and uh, we have to be looking at it. And, um, you know, and oil and gas and everything else will at some point recognize that and get behind it. You know, at the moment, they're very protective about their oil and gas. They should be. It's not going away. Oil and gas are going to be here for a long, long time. You know, we're still going to be running Mustangs on gasoline and and that for a very, very long time. We you know that's not going away. Let's let's be real. But um, uh, the bottom line is we we can do a lot in this, uh, you know, individually, and we can do a lot to actually remove fossil fuels from our uh, our challenge ahead. And uh, you know, just personally, just try not to consume so much. You know, as individuals, because. You know, it's 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 not oil and gas. It's not the the big company's fault. It's actually us as consumers. We're the people that buy and want and drive and fly and and they're just responding to demand. You know. Wow, 
Absolutely perfect. Thank you so much to both of you for helping us connect these dots, how we can use waste for good. There you have it. Everything from energy to fiber. We have Adina Lai at ninefiber.com, Carl Farrow at seraphy.com. You can invest in both of these companies via investjustly.com, an impact broker dealer with investment banking and crowdfunding services. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for tuning in. This is Josh Carey for the Justly Impact. Head on over to joshcarey.com for more. We'll see you soon.